All right. Well, uh, just a few announcements today. Um, uh, always, uh, first I'll say that uh, the building that we have made a bid on, we are within uh, uh, probably when I go home from church today, I'll send them in accepting their offer. Uh, we, we, everything's been going fine throughout the week, and we've been hem-hawing a little price back and forth. And uh, So it looks like we'll have a building here, hopefully, unless it's sold out of under us in the past uh, 24 hours, um, to meet in. And it's going to take a lot of work, so it's kind of rustic right now, like the beach. And uh, so anybody that comes in there, I uh, uh, hope they overlook all the uh, cosmetics that need to be attended to. But we'll get to those in due time. And um, that's uh, something that I'm just looking forward to. And uh, uh, if anybody has never been scripturally baptized, which is a picture of uh, salvation with Jesus, you're buried with him in the grave and raised to newness of life through the power of the resurrection, uh, I'll do that anytime after the service or any day of the week, you're uh, welcome to let me know and I'll go out and uh, do that. And um, this is our 57th sermon in uh, Genesis today, starting with Genesis 1-1 and over the past year or so we've been doing that. And um, I, uh, I want to mention something that happened here. Um, when we were first doing the Genesis sermons or sometime early when Sergio was still here, he was uh, a person that's moved to Atlanta, a Jewish guy and his Arab wife who were both Christians who came from Israel, they moved to Atlanta. But before they did, he did all of the video work. And uh, instead of donating to the church, because there's obviously no bills out here, he would pay to have advertisement done for the um, sermons. And uh, one girl, a lot of people picked up and have subscribed to the weekly videos because of this. And one girl about, um, and I asked her for permission to say this, so she knows that this is coming. Um, about, uh, I don't know, maybe seven, eight months ago, started watching these sermons. And she's been emailing me. Her name is Naj. And uh, I'm not sure where she's from originally. It's uh, uh, not, uh, uh, It sounds like either maybe an African or an Arab, uh, uh, you know, Middle Eastern name. I'm not sure. And I've never asked her that I know of. But uh, she's been very friendly. And um, she emailed me some time ago about her husband, who is a Muslim. And she asked for prayers. And uh, uh, she's been witnessing to him. And she asked, you know, what should I do? My husband's a, a Muslim and I'm a Christian. And how should I act in this? And we've talked about these things. And I said, the main thing is for you to follow the biblical example and be the godly wife that uh, you should be. And uh, the only, only thing that uh, the Bible says about this is that if a non-believer wants to leave, they can leave and you're not bound in such circumstances. That's from uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Otherwise, you want to um, uh, stay always and be that faithful wife that Christ would ask of you. And she has been, and uh, she's been talking to him about the Lord. And uh, uh, over the past week, he uh, came up to her and he said, I don't want to hear any more about Jesus. And he was kind of, uh, not an argument, I don't think, but just one of these things. And all of a sudden he turned around and he grabbed her and he says, I need Jesus right now. I, I, I need to accept Christ. And his life has completely changed in 24 hours. He's called his family. As I said, they're Muslims. And he's told them, I've accepted Christ. And uh, uh, I told her this week that uh, I wish I could be there the day he's baptized. And she says, well, is that something I need to do? And I said, it's a picture of your salvation. And Christ does command it, but you won't lose your salvation. But I think that he is today looking at the church they attend to, you know, uh, um, uh, be baptized and so uh, that's something they're going to go for and um, it started because one person was willing to just simply donate his time into this ministry Sergio who I have to thank for this and to wisely use money for the kingdom's sake and uh, so now she the first thing they did after he accepted the Lord he was he she said he just grabbed her and was crying on her she took her to our Easter service and uh, they watched that together. It was their first act as uh, husband and wife as both believers. And I, my hair is standing up right now. And I could just go on all day about this because it means so much to me to know that this has happened in their lives. And now she has asked for prayers for her brother, who is also a Muslim. His name is Brahim, and, which I believe is probably a shortened form of Ibrahim, which means Abraham. That's how the, the Muslims uh, call Abraham Ibrahim. And that's what I'm guessing, although I don't know that. And uh, anyway, so if you think of Brahim in your uh, prayers in the weeks ahead, please, you know, offer to the Lord uh, that he would come to know the Lord just as Abdul has. And uh, it, to me, it's just the most wonderful thing in the world. I, I am just absolutely grateful that that has happened and that I could hear that. And I want to thank Sergio, who does watch these videos for, and his wife Rhoda. Now, I shouldn't have excluded her at all, but uh, both of them decided to do this thing, and it is 
turned out great rewards for the kingdom of, of Christ, and I'm, I'm just thankful. Anyway, we've, uh, I'll go ahead and move on, and we've got uh, a New Testament reading today. I do this every week. I just read from the book of Romans, and we'll get through the whole New Testament, and I just give a little analysis as I'm going nothing deep. But uh, last week we didn't do it because it was a long sermon, but it'll be a little shorter today. So we're going to do Romans 4, uh, 10, 14 through 21. And uh, we'll start with, uh, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, as Abdul did, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, as he did. And so we have another believer in the kingdom. Uh, and that is what Paul says. And that goes back to a sermon I spoke about. Do we need to pray audibly? And I will give this thought is that believers do not need to pray audibly, but there is one prayer that God wants to hear from non-believers, and that is the prayer of accepting Jesus Christ. And after that, you are forever able to just speak to the Lord in whatever way you wish. You are now, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. He searches your hearts and your minds, and he is there in tune with you always. So um, that's uh, just something that's... Uh, I believe is correct on that verse. And then it says, uh, verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And that goes for Muslims. That goes for Buddhists. That goes for a corrupt guy like Charlie Garrett a, a little over uh, 11 years ago now, that we call on the name of the Lord Jesus and the things that are past in our life are gone, that your sins are washed as white as snow. It's, uh, it's a wonderful thing which the Lord does in us. And uh, whoever puts their believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, which he's been talking about the differences between them. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. And as I said, we don't want to make the, the error in our thinking that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek in the individual, because there is. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek in the salvation to Christ. But the very fact that he brings in Jew and Greek means that there's a distinction, just as Paul speaks of male and female. Yes, there is a distinction. Jesus Christ was born a Jew. He lived a Jew. He will return to his people Israel, as he said from his own mouth. So uh, uh, he will reign among the nations for a thousand years in the millennial reign of Christ from Israel and among the Jewish people. But in Christ, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And he says, for whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever, if you've never called on Jesus, today's the day. Write your name in right there and say, I want what Jesus has to offer. How then shall they call on him? He's going to make a logical argument about why we should be supporting the ministry. And it's right here. It's, uh, and I'm not talking about my ministry. I'm not asking for anything. Um, I'm talking about missionaries such as Paul and Elaine, who just came back from a year in Japan that this little church right here, Church on the Beach, supported him as he was over there with his wife. Um, uh, Paul is going to tell us how this word gets out. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, meaning Jesus? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? People all over the world still haven't heard the glorious message of Jesus. Then how shall they hear without a preacher? All right. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? So preacher doesn't mean just Charlie Garrett. It means anybody that's willing to go out and open his mouth and say, Jesus Christ is the answer to the problems of the world. Missionaries are preachers in their own right. And you have people that are out there, you know, doing mission work on Saturday morning. I go with several people every Saturday of my life and we do mission work downtown. And these people are from all walks of life. They, you know, some of them are uh, yard workers or whatever. One of them, I don't know what he does. He's information technology or something, but he's out there every week. And they are preachers preaching the word to a lost world. And he says, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? Somebody has to send them. If you don't have your own money, somebody has to send you. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Feet are the only part of the entire body that is described beautiful, specifically beautiful in the Bible. There are, you know, we have beautiful people, you know, Rachel and Rebecca are beautiful to behold, but the feet are the part of the body which is actually described as beautiful because somebody is carrying this message of Jesus Christ off to the world. Um, verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I, I, I am sorry for churches that do not preach this, that give life application sermons only. And I'm not opposed to life application sermons. And, you know, you can do them from time to time. But if you only do that and you don't preach this, 
then you've deviated from what God is asking you because faith comes by hearing and hearing comes only by the word of God. This is the only thing that we have of God's testimony to the world outside of general revelation right now. The Holy Spirit comes because we have faith and we have faith because we read the word and we hear the word and we receive Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but that is after we receive Jesus Christ. We can't neglect the word of God and, and grow and develop and know who this Lord is. And I say this week after week, after week after week, is that we have an unseen father and Jesus Christ is the one who reveals him to us. In him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, it says. And so where do we see Jesus? We don't see him in trees. We don't see him in nacho chips, although people try to find him there. We see him in the word of God. This is what reveals Jesus, and Jesus reveals the unseen Father. So we need this precious word to understand who Jesus is. But I say, they have they not heard? Now Paul's going to say something that is wonderful. He says, have they not all heard? Yes, indeed, he says. They all have heard. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's quoting David in the 19th Psalm there. And he's saying that God reveals himself through creation so that we can know this creator. And, but that is only in a general sense. And we need the specific revelation of God to know him intimately. All the world is guilty before God because of what God has created. Verse 19, but I say, did not Israel know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The people that received the oracles of God that ushered in the Messiah rejected him because it became a, 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 a religion of works based on the law rather than a religion based on faith. And as I said, and I've said this many times, is the Old Testament saints are believed in exactly the same way as the New Testament saints, by faith, by God's grace through faith. And that is proven through the Old Testament Day of Atonement. God says you have to do all of these things in order to be saved. The very fact that they had to go to Jerusalem and confess and abase themselves on that day every year was because they had not done those things. And they had to have faith that God through the high priest, was accepting that animal sacrifice in order for them to be cleansed for another year. But in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, it says that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. They were only looking forward to Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. And so all of that faith of the Old Testament saints is looking forward to something that they could not see. And all of our faith is looking backward to something that we do see. We're saved by the same great Lord. Anyway, here we'll, we'll get started now. It's um, Today is uh, Genesis 25, verses 24 through 34, and we'll be here just about 45 minutes, a normal length service. But um, uh, before we do this, every week I like to give this day in history. And so today is no different. Uh, we'll uh, start with, um, uh, today, by the way, is 13 January. On this day in 1128, Pope Honorarius II did something that I would have to disagree with. He granted a papal sanction to the military order known as the Knights Templar, and he declared it to be an army of God. And there is a problem with that, is that we as man do not declare God's army. We have that all over the world. Every religion decides that they are the army of God. I was in Japan six years, and uh, uh, they had the kamikaze, the divine wind. And uh, the Muslims, of course, are doing jihad, jihad on behalf of God, and they're declaring themselves God's army. And um, during the Civil War, one side took up arms against the other, and they both claimed that God was on their side. And we can't do that. We can claim that what we are doing is according to the word of God, but we cannot claim that we are God's army. And the Pope really had no right to do that. Only God decides his army, and that only happened at one time in human history, and that was the people of Israel for a certain purpose. And uh, they're not, uh, at least right now in this dispensation, God's army. Although I do believe God is working through the people of Israel right now, getting them ready for the return of their Messiah. Anyway, different issue, which, by the way, we will talk about next week. Genesis chapter 26, I believe, deals specifically with this time in history. What is being foreshadowed by Isaac in Genesis 26 is pointing to right now. And what's coming 
during the tribulation period. It's, it's going to be wonderful stuff. But 1794, uh, U.S. President Washington approved a measure adding two stars and two stripes to the American flag following the admission of Vermont and Kentucky to the Union. And then in 1854, a guy named Anthony, Anthony Foss of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, patented the accordion. Kind of like the accordion. I know it's a goofy instrument, what? but I kind of like it. So what's that? It, what year was it? Uh, that was in uh, 1854. Yeah. And then in uh, 1906, a guy named Hugh Gernsback of the Electro Importing Company advertised radio receivers for the sale of a sale price of just $7.50 in Scientific American. And so uh, the age of radio actually really began at that time. And uh, uh, people were able to sit at home and listen to uh, things going on right on the, uh, the airwaves. And then kind of in the same light, in 1928, Ernest F.W. Alexanderson gave the first public demonstration of TV. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, the first color TV went on sale. I think it was in the 60s or 50s. It was $1,750. And, uh, yeah, so uh, there you go. But uh, that was the first public demonstration of TV back in 1928. And then in 1942, Henry Ford, ever the innovator, and, you know, you got to wonder, the Green Movement claims, uh, uh, you know, credit for these type of things. But uh, it was Ford that patented the plastic automobile Back in um, 1942, it decreased the car weight by 30%. And the reason why he did that was to reduce fuel. And, of course, the market wasn't ready for that. And so, uh, you know, we can't have government take our money and give it to people that aren't prepared for what is coming. We let the innovators come up with an idea. And if the free market says that's what we want, then that's what they will go with. But if we force these things, such as uh, Solyndra is a very good example, the next thing you have is wasted money because they didn't have the technology or the demand for what would have come out of them. Anyway, kind of a side issue there, but uh, 1966, Elizabeth Montgomery's character, and I know this is uh, not a, a, a Christian TV thing, but I'm going to tie it in, so give me a second here. Um, Samantha, who was on the, the show of Bewitched, had a baby. Does anybody remember what the name of the baby was? Tabitha. Okay, Tabitha. And the reason why I brought that up is because Tabitha comes from the Bible. It's a Hebrew name which means gazelle. And then, of course, we have um, her name. It, Tabitha is mentioned in Acts chapter 9. Her name in Greek is Dorcas. And I can't imagine any woman being named Dorcas today. I mean, that's beyond me. But anyway, I wanted to bring in the biblical aspect of that. And also to tell you that Samantha actually comes from the book of 1 Samuel. The name Samuel means herd of God. And Samantha, which is a very modern name, derives from Samuel. And that means listener. And then I have one more question, which uh, my, if my brother was here, he'd know immediately. But what was Samantha's mother's name? No, it was Endora. Endora. And once again, Endora comes directly from the Bible, from the book of 1 Samuel again. It's when Saul went to the witch of Endor in order to call up the prophet Samuel. So you can see how all these things are actually tied right back into the Bible. So you have Endora from Endor, and uh, you have um, uh, Samantha from Samuel, and you've got Tabitha or Dorcas, which comes from Gazelle. Anyway, um, you know, I'm, I'm not into watching witch shows and things like that, but the where they get these names is rather interesting yeah. because it comes right out of the Word of God. Anyway, we're going to go ahead and read our text, our, our uh, sermon text for the uh, day, and then we'll get right into the sermon. This is Genesis 25, verses 24 through 34. Um, where am I? So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, so the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, "'Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary.' Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. 
And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, last week we looked at some details that were concerning the doctrines of election and predestination. And today we're going to see how the lives of these two babies that were fighting in their mother's, in their mother's womb are going to prefigure Adam and Jesus as they grew up. The question that I want to ask you now, and I'm going to ask this kind of in a different way halfway through the sermon, is this. What good would all of the things that you do have or that you are looking forward to having do for you if you were to die today? Something we, we need to keep in perspective as we live our lives. I didn't realize until I was almost done with preparing this sermon, and I did it about five weeks ago. I do them way in advance so I can think about them. But once I was getting towards completing the sermon, I realized that I'd come to a completely wrong conclusion about what we should learn from this account. As usual, if we rely too heavily on commentaries, and I'm not against commentaries, but I do tell people to not hold fast to commentaries, because if we do, we're bound to actually make the mistake of not learning what we're supposed to know. So let's not make that mistake today, and let's also, as you sitting here, not make the mistake of just believing me. Go home and check what I say. That is what's important, is that we hold to what God says and not what somebody is trying to insert into what God says. And I, I hope that I'm not going to do that. Our text first for today comes from 2 John. It's chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. There are deceivers and then there are deceivers. Some people deceive to get ahead in life and then some people deceive in order to hurt other people's chances of getting ahead in life. But then there are those who go out in the world and deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and thus they are a true deceiver. But what does it mean that he came in the flesh? Does that mean that Jesus didn't live, that he was a myth? No, that's not at all what, what John is trying to tell us here. George Washington came in the flesh, and nobody cares about that. He was a man who came from other men who came from Adam. This is not speaking about somebody actually existing, but rather about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the eternal God putting on garments of flesh to replace the fallen deeds of Adam. Jehovah's Witnesses deny this. I know that because when I first met the Lord, I didn't know anything. I went to Jehovah's Witnesses for quite a while until I realized that they weren't teaching what this book taught. Muslims deny this. In fact, denying the incarnation of Jesus Christ is so serious that John calls those who do an antichrist. Jesus came for a specific purpose and to accomplish a specific task, a part of which is prefigured in today's text. And so may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is Jacob and Esau. To understand the context of what we're going to look at, I want to read you just the pertinent verses from last week. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The foreknowledge of God has been relayed to Rebekah, and his plans for the life of these boys and their posterity will come about exactly as is prophesied, and history has borne out the prophecy. We come to our first verse today, verse 24. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. As we noted a moment ago from last week's account, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for Rebekah to have a child. And in his grace, he didn't just give her one, he gave her two. God is abundantly good to each of us as he unfolds the future in the present in our lives. Rebecca's days were fulfilled, and from conception to birth, we know it's nine months. It's about 266 to 270 days, and now the time has arrived. Here at the moment of delivery, Rebecca's ready to meet her boys. For those of you who love the details, 
and you know I love the details, the word for twins here is the Hebrew word tomim. If you listen closely, you can hear the name of another noted biblical figure, the Apostle Thomas, or this gentleman over here. His name is Tom. Tomim, or in its singular form, Taom, is directly translated into Thomas. He is noted in John 11, verse 16, by his other Greek name as well. Here's what it says. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. The word Didymus means exactly the same thing. It means twofold or twin in Greek, or as we might say in English, ditto. So now, if you meet someone named Tom, like this gentleman over here, you will have all sorts of things that you can teach him. His name comes from Taom, which means uh, twin, which is translated into Thomas, which means Didymus in Greek, which means ditto in English. So there you go, a little, little uh, tying together of the name of Thomas. Verse 25, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Esau is born first, and so without going any further, we know from the prophecy that was given to Rebekah that he and his line will serve the next child to be born. When he came out, he was all red. And it doesn't state whether the red was from the blood adhering to his hair or if he was naturally red. But my guess is that it's the latter. He was naturally red. One ancient Jewish scholar wrote that he believes this red color would be uh, an indicator that this guy would be a shedder of blood, he would be fierce, and he would be cruel. And this is borne out by his descendants later in the Bible, and so it's a very good supposition, but it's still just a supposition. What's also noted about him is that he was born with so much hair on his body that he actually looked like a hairy garment all over. This is a genetic occurrence which is known as hypertrichosis. And because of this, they named him Esau. Esau means made. I want to see if any of you already are getting a picture of Adam in here. What the parents are implying is then, uh, from naming him made, is that in the womb, he was made more like a man than actually a baby in his premature development. Because of the early development, his youth is going to be much more passionate and precocious than others his age, and that'll be borne out in a couple verses. What it also means for his future is that he is more earthly than spiritual. And this is going to be perfectly evident as we go on in the picture of what Esau points to in the writings of Paul in the New Testament. The word describing him as red is used about only one other person in the entire Old Testament. Anybody take a guess who it's speaking of? Speaking of the great King David. When he was there, this little boy, and he's got his five uh, stones in a sling, and he's getting ready to kill this giant Philistine, uh, Goliath, says this. And when the Philistines looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy. Ruddy is the word, and good-looking. So he was of red color also. He was similar to Esau. David, like Esau was thought to be, and this is why I think this is a good supposition about what that Jewish scholar said, David was a man of blood. And because he was a man of blood, God said David wanted to build a temple for the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And God came to him in a vision through the prophet uh, Nathan, and he said, you are not to build this house for me. You are a shedder of blood. Therefore, your son who comes from your own body will build the temple for me. And it turned out to be Solomon, a man of peace. But uh, the, the fact that they're both red seems to indicate their life and their nature. It's kind of an interesting parallel. Verse 26, afterward his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. The one who will be served comes out last as an indication of their future, just as God prophesied, and in this he is holding Esau's heel. And because of this he was given the name of Yaakov, or Jacob. This name has a few different meanings, which are all based on the singular idiom, which is he takes hold by the heel. The idea is, all these different idioms, that by grabbing somebody by the heel, you'll be someone who trips somebody up. That's one of the idioms, is you'll trip somebody up, and obviously that's what you're going to do. But there's also the idea of a deceiver. That's, he's called a deceiver because tripping somebody up by the, the heel, you're deceiving them. And also the idea of one who supplants, somebody that takes the place of another one. Or finally, of one who follows closely behind. All of these are tied in with this one uh, name, and they all fit the life and circumstances of Jacob very well, if you know his story. 
But grabbing the heel or following after is the idea that we want to get here, and that's the idea that the Bible presents. Paul is going to explain it to us later. As you'll see in the verses ahead, the account of these two boys picture fallen Adam and the risen Christ. Jacob's first act in life is remembered by the prophet Hosea many, many generations later. Here's what Hosea writes about him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength, he struggled with God. That second part is something we're going to see in about maybe 10 or 12 more sermons. It'll be a few chapters ahead. Verse 26 continues. Isaac was 60 years old when she, meaning Rebekah, bore them. Isaac was born in the year 2109 Anno Mundi, or from the creation of the world, and he was married at the age of 40. They were, uh, Rebecca was barren for 19 years. She had a child the next year, so this is 20 years later. The children are born to him. It is now the year 2169 Anno Mundi. Although Abraham's death was recorded in the previous chapter, and we did the whole sermon on that, believe it or not, Abraham is still alive. Then he's going to be alive for 15 years after the birth of these children. And he's probably a very happy grandpa because the son of promise has now bore the son of promise. Verse 27, so the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. In one verse, in one verse, we skipped over enough years to see these boys grown to where they're old enough where they can live and work alone. God only includes the details which are necessary to show us his thoughts and to lead us to Jesus. Here in this first verse about their adulthood, God shows us two types or pictures of the two men. The first picture is Esau. And as I said, his name means made, just as Adam was made from the dust of the earth in a word that was very similar to Esau's name in Genesis 1.26. The word for create is bara. God did not use that word for the creation of man. He did later, but not in the Genesis 1.26 account. He used the word asa, which is basically the same root as Esau. He said this, let us make man in our image. So Adam was a complete man when he was made, just as Esau is a complete man pictured coming out all hairy from the womb. He's an exceptional birth. He is a fully developed man. He's also a hunter one who obtains his living from the ground, and he is a man who lives off of the ground. Once again, he's a picture of Adam who was taken from the ground, just like Esau is a, a son of Adam, and he is destined to uh, obtain his sustenance from the ground that he came from. Esau can be summed up in the words from God to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Here's what they said. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Once again, as a hunter, he's like Nimrod that came before him, and like his uh, uh, Isaac's brother, his uncle Ishmael, both of them came before Esau, and both of them, along with Esau, picture fallen man fighting to live off of the toil of the earth. They are earthly, and they're unspiritual. Jacob, on the other hand, is a picture of Jesus Christ. He's noted as a mild man. In one, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Jesus, or Paul, terms Jesus both gentle and meek in that particular chapter. But the word used for mild is the word tom. And this word means much more than mild. It means specifically blameless or perfect. Just a perfect description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hear some people coughing. I think we've got some red tide. If you want to pass out those, um, those uh, throat lozenges, they may, may help everybody. Anyway, Jacob is noted as dwelling in tents. Okay? Guess what? We see Christ in that as well, because Christ dwelt in a tent when he was in the tabernacle of the wilderness, when the Jews were carrying this around. We had the uh, presence of God above the Ark of the uh, Covenant between the cherubim that was in tents in the wilderness. And then, of course, we had the Temple of Jerusalem, where the Ark is, and we have the presence of God, which is Jesus Christ, dwelling in another temporary structure, the Temple. 
all right? And then finally, Jesus Christ came and put on a tabernacle of flesh, and he dwelt among us, just as John records. It says in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. That means he put on a tent and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of an only begotten of a father, full of grace and truth. The picture of Christ that Jacob makes as he dwelt in his tent is ultimately fulfilled in Revelation chapter 21. Behold, it says, the tabernacle or the tent of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. You can see all of these pictures of Jacob and Esau picturing Adam and Christ just from this one verse. Unlike Esau who hunted wild animals, Jacob is a shepherd. Once again, picturing Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd, who came to guide his flock from the earth to the heavenly spiritual realm. Esau is destructive in game. He goes out and he shoots wild animals. But Jacob is constructive in sheep. He's gathering sheep together and making a flock for an eternal dwelling. And thus we see Adam, and thus we see Christ. Verse 28, and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game but Rebekah loved Jacob. The Hebrew literally says that Isaac loved Esau because of the venison in his mouth. It's very descriptive and it shows that he loved the meat as much as the boy. Rebekah, on the other hand, loved Jacob, but no reason is given. It could stem back all the way to the prophecy that was given before the children were born, or it could simply be that Esau stank like the Dickens when he came home and you know he's been out in the, the field hunting. We have no idea why, but we need to note that it doesn't say that either parent did not love the other child. They merely favored one child over the other. Almost every commentator that I've seen in the past has barbecued them for showing preference over their children. I don't see it that way. I've got a mother, she comes out here week after week and she prefers one of us over the other. And I'm not jealous that she loves him more. And that doesn't mean she loves him in a loving way. She dotes on him more. They're more uh, opposite and so they attract to each other and this is exactly what the Bible is showing here anyway the words of Malachi show us that if our thoughts about Isaac and Rebecca and how they deal with their children are negative then our thoughts dealing with with how the Lord deals with Esau and Jacob should be negative as well because the Lord deals much much more harshly with Esau than either parent does it says in the book of Malachi was not Esau Jacob's brother says the Lord, yet I have, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. And once again, I want to point out that what this is speaking about is not specifically Esau as a person. It's speaking of the people that came from him because the prophecy specifically said, two nations are in your womb, two uh, peoples will be separated from your womb. Anyway, in the opposite, and as I said, opposites, opposites attract. Isaac was not an adventurer. He stayed in his tent while a servant went off to uh, get a wife for him, okay? But Rebecca is a great adventurer. She made this adventure, leaving her family with less than 24 hours notice, going down to the promised land to meet her husband. Jacob is the type to stay at home and in tents and watch TV and read books, whereas Esau is out in the field and he's catching game. So you see that Isaac and Rebecca attract each other. Jacob and Rebecca attract each other and Isaac and Esau attract each other because they are opposites. There shouldn't be any finger pointing here. That's just the way it is. We need to accept what the Bible is written and not try to place blame where blame isn't necessarily needed. Our second thought today is trading heaven's riches for a bowl of stew. The words right here, now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. weary. The words for cooked a stew are Yezed Nazid. They're important words, so I'm going to talk about them a little bit later. It literally says, boiled a boiling. Jacob was in the house cooking food. Now, one ancient Jewish commentator states that this cooking is probably done at a certain time of morning. And if that's the case, it was probably at the time of Abraham's death, which means that they'd be 15 years old at this time. If so, and this is completely speculation, they'd be 15 and Jacob is inside cooking and Esau comes in wearily from the field. And once again, this aligns beautifully with the curse of Adam. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it. 
all the days of your life. He's been in the field and he's been out there, he's toiling, he's hungry, and Esau becomes Adam in our unfolding story. Jacob is Jesus. He's at home and he's cooking up the greatest meal in all of human history. Verse 30, this is really starting to get me too, I'm sorry. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. I do mission work every single Saturday of my life. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. And one of the people that I've gotten to know down in the projects is a guy named 39. I had no idea for the longest time why he was called 39. But eventually I found out that he played football at the same high school that I graduated with. He graduated with my older brother, but his number was 39. And so his name stuck and everybody calls him 39. Esau looks at this stuff in this soup bowl and he very well may not even have known what it is because he simply says, please, with the red, the red. Or in Hebrew, it says, namin ha'adom ha'adom. He's hungry, he's tired, and he simply wants to eat. But because of this description, the way he says, just give me the red, the red, he gets his name Edom. It very well could be that people already called him that because of the, you know, the color of his hair and the color of his skin. But now the name sticks permanently because of his exclamation. And here we see him again as a picture of Adam. Adam was taken from the dust of the earth, mix in water, and you get red clay. And thus he received his name, Adam. Here we have Edom, which is the exact same root as the name Adam. Both are red, both are earthly, both are tied to the red, the red ground from which they came and from which their sustenance comes. And so you see Esau, Asa, Adam, Edom. The names are being put in here for a picture for us to see what God is doing through Adam and through Jesus Christ. Verse 31, but Jacob said, <clears throat> Sell me your birthright as of this day. Jacob intends now to gain from what he knows is his quick-willed twin. And so he offers him the red, the red, if he will sell his birthright to him. Under the law of Moses, a birthright was a double portion of what the other children would get. If there were six children, the father would take the estate and divide it into seven, and he would give two-sevenths to the oldest son. This birthright is different than that. This predates the law of Moses. It included being the chief of the clan and receiving all authority and all title to the estate. Just as Isaac got everything from Abraham, the same birthright would then pass to Esau, and Jacob wants this. It also being, uh, involved being next to the parents, the parental blessing, and the promises which would lead to the Messiah, and eventually to the inheritance of the land of Canaan, the promised land as well as the priestly functions of the family. If you're able to see it, all of these things point to the position and status of Jesus Christ. Jacob lets Esau know that there, if there is to be a meal, it will involve a transfer of these rights. And as I said, they point to Jesus. He is the chief of the human clan. He receives all authority, as it says in Matthew 28, all title to the earth. Once again, Matthew 28, it involves being next to the parents. He is the only begotten son of the father. It involves the parental blessings. God the father blessed him because of the resurrection. He has his eternal life. He is truly God. He, it involves the promises which would lead to the Messiah. He is the Messiah. It involves the inheritance of the promised land. And of course, he has title deed to the earth and title deed to the heavens. And finally, it involves the rights of the priestly functions. And in Hebrews, it clearly says that Jesus Christ is our high priest. All of this points to Jesus. Jacob is looking for this exchange, an exchange from that which is earthly to that which is spiritual. Edom, like Adam, is willing to give up his spiritual inheritance for what is earthly. And Jesus is, was willing to give up what was earthly for that which is heavenly. This is where Jacob first finds his fulfillment in his name, heel grabber. He's looking to grab hold of the position of his older brother by grabbing the birthright. And this refers back to the play on words concerning the soup. The word yazed, as I said, means boiling, and it comes from the word zid or zed, which is boil. The word here has an idiom, idiomatic uh, expression to it. We use the word boil in English to indicate rage. But in Hebrew, 
It means to act proudly or presumptuously. Jacob is taking advantage, presumptuously taking advantage of the situation which has been presented in order to obtain the estate and everything that goes along with it. And Jesus is going to take advantage of another situation to obtain fallen man's title deed and everything that goes along with it. And so Jacob tells Esau to sell him his birthright this day. In other words, in complete and full terms and out in the open. If this is agreed on, then Esau is going to get his soup. And I have a question for you. Does anyone here see the Lord's Supper in all of this? Jesus has come to receive the promises of Adam. His red blood is the transfer of that item. If we are in Adam and we want what his cup, Jesus, offers, we as Adam, we are now Esau. We have to give up any attempt at obtaining those things ourselves. We cede, C-E-D-E, our rights to him, to Jesus Christ, to be our priest, to having any claim on our estate, to all of the promises of the Messiah and the rightful ownership of the promised land. If we accept his blood, his offer, for us ceding our rights to him, the transfer is made. However, in our case, we what we lose is replaced by being granted eternal life. And this is not stretching this at all because the next verse confirms it. Verse 32, and Esau said, look, I am about to die. So what is this birthright to me? In Hebrew, he says, Anochi holech lamut. I am to die. Esau, he's a real whiner about his stomach. And if anybody knows me, my wife will testify to this. If I get hungry, nothing else matters. Oh, please feed me. You know, that, that is me in this particular situation. But I don't want you to misunderstand me here. There is a real occurrence, which the Bible is later going to condemn in Esau. But there is a spiritual occurrence that we need to note as sons of Adam being pictured by Esau. And we need to hold fast to it. In the real occurrence, Esau is giving up the treasures of heaven for a mere bowl of soup. The Bible is later going to call him profane because of this. To Esau, the prospect of his physical life was of more value than the spiritual things that he would have received. In his thinking, if he died, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. It could be that he's truly hungry and he's exhausted. But his thought is, if I die, Jacob is going to get everything anyway. However, there's nothing in the context of this to show us that he is literally a step away from death. Okay, all we have is his words and they aren't very convincing. If he can get up and carry himself inside the house, he's not going to die if he doesn't eat right away. But the birth, this birthright is as much a spiritual thing as it is an earthly blessing. And so it would only be of value to someone with faith to understand what it means. If we're to look at a modern parallel of this birthright, I would say it's education. If we look forward to an education and we understand the benefits we're going to get from it, then we will pursue an education. If not, we're going to continue making whatever, 10 or $13 an hour, thinking I'm getting my paycheck at the end of the week and that's all that matters. But an education sets us free from that type of bondage. Now, a better example might be someone who is willing to read and to study their Bible. Because unless you understand the spiritual aspect of the Bible and your necessity to grasp that, it means nothing to you. It is the place where all of heaven's treasures are stored and yet we sell it off every single day of our life for TV or maybe playing the Wii. The most glorious treasure that God has left us on this earth, apart from the sealing of the Holy Spirit, is sold away for soup. The Geneva Bible says this about this particular verse. The reprobate do not value God's benefits unless they feel them presently. I want my weekly paycheck. I want my weekly paycheck. And therefore, they prefer present pleasures. Kind of a tongue twister there. What I want you to know, though, and I don't want you to miss this, is the spiritual aspect of what we see here is exactly the opposite. Anochi holech lamut. I am to die. All of us are destined to die. We are all Esau and we are all walking in the door and we are looking for soup. And when we die, none of our treasures will matter. 
Like Esau figured, someone else is going to get them anyway. Solomon describes this beautifully in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Here he says this, Then I hated all my labor which I had toiled in the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled, and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. The question that we have to ask ourselves, and I alluded to this at the beginning of the sermon, is am I willing to give up everything for one meal? If that meal will give us life, then isn't the exchange worthwhile? It's the opposite that's being taught us through Esau here. There is only one meal that will ever satisfy. You see, in this meal, we move from Esau to Jacob and from the authority of Adam to the authority of Jesus Christ. Just as Edom became subservient to Jacob, we too, we sons of Adam, must cede our rights and our authority to Jesus Christ in order to have true life. Now, hopefully, you can understand. If you've ever read these words from John chapter 6, they're almost brutal, and a lot of people kind of abuse them, what Jesus says here. But if you understand what's going on with Esau and Jacob, you can understand Jesus' words here. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Now, I'll tell you real quickly, there are four prevalent views on the, the taking of the sacraments. One is the Roman Catholic view, which says that you are literally eating Jesus, body and blood, every time you take the sacraments, okay? I won't get into any detail with this, but just so you understand this. The second is the Lutheran view, which is, uh, imagine fire in metal, okay? When you take it, you're receiving Christ in that sense. It's not literally his body and blood, but it's as if fire is in metal when you're taking it. The third view would be the Calvinistic view on taking these sacraments. And Calvin said that Jesus Christ is spiritually present when you take the elements. And the final view would be Swingali, which is most Baptists, and they say that it is symbolic of the Lord and his sacrifice. So you have the four prevalent views, and one of them is taught very clearly in what we're looking at right here today. And I'm not going to tell you which it is, because I've done that in a previous sermon. If you want to know, we can talk about it after the sermon. But anyway, the correct answer of which is true is actually found in the Old Testament the Lord's Supper. It's an amazing thing that's going on here. Verse 33, then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. We have a 16th century bishop. He was a satirist and he was a moralist. The guy's name is John Hall. And he had these thoughts about this particular verse. There was never any meat except the forbidden fruit, meaning the fruit that Adam ate in the Garden of Eden, so dear bought as this broth of Jacob. For nothing more than lunch, which was as much water as it was lentils, all of Esau's treasures are sold away. And for the same soup, Jacob inherited many, many glories in the years ahead. And each one of them, we need to remember, is recorded right here today. This wasn't just a walk in their life which ended when they died. Instead, the account which we're looking at has been read by people for over 4,000 years. The question that should come up in our minds as we contemplate this is what will I be remembered for because those boys didn't know that they were going to be used as examples in the Bible and we don't know how God is going to use our own actions in the future for other people's edification and learning okay everything may be recorded in a way that everybody is going to see everything we ever did and so we need to be careful about how we live our life and conduct all right and even if our actions are not recorded for everybody to see we are still living in God's sight and he knows the moral state that we're in even if other people don't again I'm going to turn to the Geneva Bible for their thoughts on this verse thus the wicked prefer their worldly conveniences over God's spiritual graces but the children of God do the opposite verse 34 and Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils then he ate and drank arose and went his way thus Esau despised his birthright. 
It's funny. This is the first time that bread is mentioned in this entire chapter. Esau gave up his birthright for bread and the red, the red that would keep him alive for a few more hours. And we have been asked to give up our birthright for the true bread and the true red that will give us eternal life. Without trying to sensationalize the life, the, the life and lessons that we should get from Esau, we need to at least note the attitude that he presents. As I said, there is a physical aspect to what's going on here, and there is a spiritual aspect to what's going on here, and the two are diametrically opposed in how we handle them, and they come from exactly the same account. For the physical lesson of Esau's life, the author of Hebrews tells us the type of person that Esau really was. The morality that Esau displays becomes an example to each of us how not to live, especially concerning spiritual matters. Here's what Hebrews says. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone should fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Paul writes about this type of attitude in Philippians chapter 3, people who set their mind on the things of the world. And what he says so closely resembles Esau that we have to consider it. Here's what Paul writes. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even with weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is their destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Sounds just like Esau, doesn't it? However, in the spiritual aspect of what we're seeing in today's story, we actually must be willing to sell everything for a single meal, a spiritual meal. Continuing on in the exact same passage from Paul's hands to the Philippians, we read this, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And you can see right there the contrast between Esau and Jacob again and again in what Paul is writing, Adam and Christ again and again what Paul is writing. I said a while ago that the firstborn granted the right, this birthright to Jacob. This would make one chief of the clan and they would receive all authority and all title to the estate. In today's passage, the authority is passed from Esau to Jacob. The transfer is a picture of the transfer from Adam to Christ. As a son of Adam, we have a right to our birthright in this fallen world. This is our inheritance. Adam had the title to Eden, and he gave it up for a single bite of fruit. Edom did the exact same thing for a bowl of soup. Both meals were temporary and both meals were unsatisfying. Jacob received the birthright by a vow that was sworn by Esau and it was irrevocable. And I want you to know that it was irrevocable just as your salvation in Jesus Christ can never be taken away. Jesus now asks each one of us to give up our inheritance in this earthly realm under Adam and which is earthly and to submit to his rule and his authority. Jacob replaces the firstborn Esau, and Paul clearly explains that Jesus Christ replaces the first man, Adam. This is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. However, the spiritual was not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of the dust. That's Adam, that is Esau. The second man is the Lord from heaven. This is Jacob prefiguring Jesus Christ. As was the man of the dust, so also are those who are of the dust. Every one of us is the son of Adam, and we are all destined to die and return to the dust from which we came. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Jesus Christ promises in the resurrection that we too will be resurrected and we will be like him. And Paul says right here, and as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, Adam, we also shall bear the image of the heavenly man. 
The question for Adam's seed is, and this is every human being that's ever existed, do we want to live an ungodly and profane life like Esau and give up heaven's riches for what is earthly and temporary, or do we want to sell our earthly riches for a spiritual meal which will grant us heaven and eternal life? Remember what the prophecy said to Rebecca about the two children in her womb. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. There are two people groups on the earth. There's lots of divisions of people, Jew and Gentile, etc., etc. But there is one overall picture of two groups of people on the earth. One is serving the older, and one is serving the younger. I never fully grasped God's words through Malachi until I wrote this sermon. Remember, I read these earlier. Listen again carefully. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. How does that picture to us in Adam or in Christ? Listen, the Bible says that we are children of wrath by nature. That's in the book of Ephesians. We are earthly and we are serving the first man, Adam. But we can become heavenly and we can serve the second, who is Christ. When we make that choice, which is all symbolized in the Lord's Supper, in which we're going to take in about two more minutes, we go from being children of wrath to being adopted sons of God and beloved for all eternity. Just as we see the picture of these two boys in this one passage from the Old Testament, the book of Foundations, Genesis. And if any of you here have never personally accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd like to speak to you just for two more minutes and try to explain to you what this involves. Jesus Christ came to replace the fallen deeds of Adam. I've said that a million times today because it's fully pictured by Esau and Jacob. We are born in Adam and we received Adam's sin before we were ever born. And we cannot go back before Adam and correct that sin. We are in the thing called time, which is going forward. And we can't go back before the sin that's committed. And what's worse is in our own lives, we have committed our own sins. Every one of us has told a lie. We've all done something to offend an infinitely righteous God. And therefore, we are eternally separated from God because he's infinite and we're finite. And thus, there was the need for a God-man. Jesus Christ, fully God, born of a woman, but not of man. He didn't inherit Adam's sin because sin comes through the father. And he is fully man because he came from his mother, who is a human being. He is the God-man, the incarnation. He lived the life that you and I cannot live. He lived it perfectly. And then he gave up his life in exchange for what we have done wrong, if we will accept the offer. And it's this simple. You simply call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God will wash away your sins, and he will reconcile you to himself through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And now Jesus Christ can take his hand and he can put it on finite you, fallen and sinful, and he can take his hand and he can put it on his infinite father because he is the God-man and he can make that bridge back between the two of you. And there is eternal salvation in the Lord. The Bible says the moment you believe in Jesus Christ and call out to him, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And it says it's a deposit. It's a guarantee. It cannot be taken away ever. You will make mistakes in the future, but Jesus Christ has already dealt with it. You are seated now, according to the book of Ephesians, with him in the heavenly realms if you have called on Jesus Christ. So please, if you've never done that, I would ask you today to simply call on Jesus. And I want to give you a closing verse and to think about this closing verse. In an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do you remember what Jacob said to Esau? Swear to me as of this day. Jesus Christ does not guarantee you another breath. You might pull out on the midnight pass road today and die. And your past is behind you. All you have is the present. That's all you have as a guarantee is right now. If you've never called on Jesus, make the commitment and he will take care of all of the rest of eternity for you. All right? Of course, I have one more thing that I do each and every week. It takes about 30 seconds, and uh, I read you a poem based on the verses that uh, uh, we went through today. And I'll let you know before I read that poem that uh, next week's sermon is Genesis 26, 1 through 14. It's called A Famine in the Land. 
As I said, I do believe that Genesis 26 is pointing specifically to the end times, and I believe they're starting right during our lifetime. Anyway, here's our poem for the week. It's called Heaven's Riches for a Meal. And that's a double entendre because you can either sell heaven's riches for a meal and you can remain in Adam, or you can buy heaven's riches for a meal, which is Jesus Christ, and you can have heaven's riches for all of eternity. So it's kind of a double entendre. Here we go. When Rebecca's days were fulfilled to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red like the clay of the earth. He was hairy as a garment, like mohair, I presume. So they called his name Esau because like a man he was made. I wonder if those who saw him stood back and were dismayed. After Esau, his younger brother then came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was Jacob because with no doubt he was a heel grant grabber and supplanting was his deal. When Rebekah bore them, Isaac was 60 years of age and his life was now turning a brand new page. So the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter. A man of the field was his type of life. But Jacob was a mild man, not a physical grunter. He dwelt in tents. Instead of arrows, he used a butter knife. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob and the man he became. Now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in weary from the field. And Esau said to Jacob, I'm famished through and through. Please feed me some of that red stew before my life I yield. Therefore, Edom was called his name. Both his color and the color of the soup were the same. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Tell me, I pray. Then Jacob said, swear as of this day between you and I. So he swore to him and to Jacob he sold his birthright. And Jacob gave Esau bread and some lentil stew. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went out of sight. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He told it adieu. Here we are pictured by these boys, and we have choices in this world to make. Will we pursue all the earthly toys, or will we give them up for heaven's sake? We can sell our birthright for that which perishes, or we can sell it for the thing that God most cherishes. If we sell it for a bowl of soup that Adam did make, then it is a sad choice that we have made. But if we sell it for the heavenly cake, then by God above it was a glorious trade. Eat of the bread and drink of the blood of the Lord Jesus, provided freely to all. And when you do, it shall be understood that through this act, Christ in you has reversed Adam's fall. Great and glorious, splendid God above, let us shout out to you with praises and with love. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful, this wonderful story of these two boys that grew up to picture Adam and Christ and how we have choices to make just as they had choices that they made. And one of the choices is eternity apart from you and the other is eternity with you. And I would pray that each person here or any person that ever watches on YouTube would make the right choice and would call on Jesus Christ and would accept him as Lord and Savior. Lord, please bless each person here in the week ahead and uh, uh, also take care of their coughs, which they're getting from the red tide. And uh, I ask that you just bless each one of them and uh, help them to uh, breathe freely and as they uh, head back to their homes. We love you. We praise you. We look in anticipation for the wonders which you have in store for us for all of eternity. And we give you great honor and great praise and great glory because of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.